What is God's true name? People talk about praying in Jesus' name, but what even is the true name of God's Son? Does the personal label really matter that much? Some people say, yes, it does, because we don't want to be praying in the name of a false God, right? We don't want to be calling God the wrong name and dishonor Him, right? See, I think the key to all of this is understanding what the name of God really means in Scripture. Then we can learn how to properly pray in God's name and live according to who He really is. So this message will be all about the name of God. Let's jump into the message. We are in a series all about prayer, how to pray, why we pray, what prayer is. And uh, this is the part in the series where we talk about how to pray in God's name. And um, we're kind of walking through uh, the prayer of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. And we're at the point in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, uh, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get into the petition, the requesting part. And as I was going through the message, I thought, well, I want to talk about asking and petitioning and knowing how to pray biblically in terms of asking God for things, but I think we need to understand what God's name is first. Because Jesus will say in John 14, John 15, that we should pray in his name, that we should ask for things in his name. And so just to be clear, uh, there's going to be hopefully more clarity on this subject as we go along throughout the message, but this is a message about prayer and this is where we fall um, in this series about praying, is requesting and petitioning, and we have to know about God's name. We have to, if we're going to pray and live properly, um, and approach God properly. And so, just a little bit of housekeeping. This week, we're in Genesis chapter 3. As you'll see, the messages that come out, the Bible studies in the evening, will be on Genesis 3. So, be studying Genesis 3 as a community this week, in, in your small groups, in um, the Discord, online, in your own private time. Be studying Genesis 3, meditate on that passage, and hopefully the evening sessions We'll take you deeper into Genesis 3. Uh, prayer defined, if we're going to define prayer properly, uh, just to give you a succinct definition. Prayer is talking to God with intention, uh, with purpose, as his own beloved child, and according to his word. That's how we've defined prayer. Those specific elements always accompany prayer. Talking to God, intention and purpose, as his beloved child, and according to his word. And the power of prayer, the reason we pray, the purpose of prayer, is that God has determined prayer to be the method of causing certain things in our life and in our world. This doesn't mean everything it depends on prayer and depends on someone to ask for it, but there's a lot of things that God has ordained sovereignly by his decree that these things will only happen when people pray and ask me to do these things. Let me take you to John 14. I discovered this really cool feature in Logos, which actually allows me to format all my verses. And instead of me copying and pasting from my notes into the actual software, I just click it and go in the order I, I make it. That's crazy. So John 14, 13, and 14, a uh, little Logos plug. Whatever you ask in my name, this is kind of the basis of this message. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says this, I will do. In my name, he says, in my name, this I will do that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is what Jesus is teaching his disciples, is that we ought to, the disciples of Jesus ought to pray in his name. Now I had to do quite a deep study on the name in scripture. And 
there's a, probably a lot you're going to learn, and there's probably a lot that's just going to be reinforced, and you already know this. Uh, when it comes to the English dictionary defin- definition of the word name, and I just had to look this up first before I go down this rabbit trail, the word name in English, the dictionary definition is a word or a set of words by which a person, animal, place, or thing is known, addressed, or referred to. It's a proper personal label for a thing, a place, a thing, um, an animal. I said thing twice, but you get the idea. So the question becomes, and this is uh, for some reason, this has been all across my comments lately. Is God's name Yahweh, Yahuwah? Is God's name um, Adonai? Is God's name Jehovah? Is God's name Hashem, which is the name in scripture? Which a common way to refer to God is by the name. Is God's name the majesty on high? Should we refer to him as the eternally existent one? Should we refer to him as how he referred to, revealed himself to Moses? I am that I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient one. Is God's name Lord God Almighty? And the answer to all these questions is yes. Yes, indeed. Um, the actual revealed name of God to Moses, specifically in Exodus chapter 3, Yahuwah, because the Hebrew language does not have vowels, um, it's just consonants, Y-H-W-H. So you got yod Hey vav Hey. That assortment of consonants forms the divine name of God, Yahuwah, which uh, I did a little research and I did some studying. Um, God revealed himself this way to Moses. And what you need to know about the history of God's name throughout the, um, the Jewish nation and the way they related to God's name is the sacredness of God's name led the people of Israel to never write or speak that holy, sacred, divine name because of how holy it was. So instead, Adonai is how they would refer to God as being the Lord, Master, King. Okay, so eventually, Yahuwah, that consonant, that assembly of consonants, Y-H-W-H, yod heh vav heh Yahuwah became, uh, when, you, when you actually insert vowels in looking at Adonai, Yahuwah became a visual representation of the sacredness of God's name. And I got this from a Bible project video, which actually was really helpful. Um, so when you look at the name Yahuwah, you insert A in between Y and H. I wish I could show this to you. But Yahuwah was a visual representation of, hey, God's name is holy. So this is a reminder to use the name Adonai, which eventually in English was translated Jehovah, transliterated Jehovah, okay? Because of how there's no J in the Hebrew language, and the vowels of Adonai, those vowels that we see in Adonai, were inserted in between Y-H-W-H, which gives you the name Yehoah. So just a little background on the way that um, certain personal labels have been attributed to the God, the true and living God, and how those have developed over time and how those were transliterated. That's not necessarily the basis of the message. Just to give you a little history around the name, the personal labels that people often go, well, God only has one of those personal labels, and if you use the wrong one, then you're false. We cannot forget this, okay? And I think this is very important moving forward. God, G-O-D, that word in the English language is a title. It's not a personal name. That is a title that rightfully belongs to the only truly eternally existent being who is one in nature, essence, and name. The divine being we refer to as God. That's a title for the God of the Bible. And so we refer to God as having compound unity, our God, and you know, when in the Shema, when we look at God, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. We talk about that, the Lord is one, but God is a title. Okay, so let me take it Exodus chapter 3 to show you what I mean. When God reveals His name, people get so hung up on the assembling of the letters and the way it sounds and how it's transliterated in the language, we forget the actual 
biblical theological framework of this name idea. The name is less about, and I'm going to show you why, the name is less about an assembling of letters in a specific language and a way to pronounce that. The name of God is more about the sum total of his attributes and characteristics as the only true divine being who is eternally existent. So when God reveals himself to Moses, and this has huge implications on your prayer, okay? This has huge implications on your prayer life, on the way that you live, to understand, not forget the history and the background of how God's name developed, but who is God? Exodus 3.15, God reveals himself. He says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this is what's interesting is people usually get wrapped up in this. The Lord God. And they go, that's how we need to exclusively refer to the God of scripture is the Lord God. But when God says, this is my name forever, is it more about the actual personal label and the assembling of the letters and the sounding of that out? Or is the heart of this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Because when you say that, that packs a punch. That has a lot of theological depth. That has a lot of weight and glory and history and background and character attached to it. If I just say the Lord God, that will carry different pictures and images and ideas for different people. It will be relative to how people understand how that name and the history of that name. But when I say the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Well, now you're thinking all their stories, all their history, the way that God related to them, the way that God came through for them, the way that God interacted with them. All of that seems to be more of what God is referring to when he says, this is my name forever. And yes, we can get to the the actual, you know, rendering of the Hebrew and grammatically, are you talking about the Lord God or I think it's both. But the main point is who I am, who I'm to be revealed as, and who I need you to tell the people of Israel I am is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which has a lot of history, weight, and depth to it. I'm so used to copying and pasting the verses in the, I can just click it. Look at that. So beautiful. Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And you go, see, Exodus 3, 15. He's saying the Lord. I am that I am the self-existent, self, you know, eternally existent one, the self-sufficient one. That's his name. Well, hold on. Look at how he explains what it is that his name is the Lord. He says, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So let me take it Exodus chapter 6 as well. Just think about that. The weight of this is that God has no, he doesn't share glory and worship with anything, anyone, or any, any other object or idea. He alone is the true God to be worshipped. The Lord is his name. Let's keep going. Exodus 6.3, and this will get clearer and clearer as we move through this. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Okay, he's about to make a distinction. The Lord is talking to, um, if I can get this to highlight, (gasps) don't freeze on me. Well, as it's freezing, Um, God is talking to Moses. And if I can just highlight this, boom. And he says, look, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as God Almighty. And you can read throughout their story that he would appear. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be holy. Live the way I call you to. But by my name, the Lord. 
This is what people get hung up on and really focus on to the neglect of who he is and, and what he's about. The Lord, I didn't make myself known to them. Okay, so with these three verses, you might be able to build a theology and an idea that says, yeah, we should only refer to God as the Lord. Based on the way he revealed himself in Exodus 3, Exodus 6, Isaiah 42, when he says, that is my name, then we should refer to him as such and nothing else. We should say, you are the Lord. You are God Almighty. You are, I am that I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient one. When we refer to God in these different ways, Jehovah, Adonai, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, Hashem, the name. Before you can truly know what it means to pray in Jesus' name, before you can understand what it means to live according to his name, before you can approach him according to his name, we need to have a biblical understanding of what the name of God even is. Now you go, we just saw it, it's the Lord. And I'd say, that, that is just the tip of the iceberg. That is the shallowest way to understand the name of God. And here's why. What you're going to see, and I'm just going to list this out for you right now, as we're going to unpack this. This might be a lot for you. But the name of God in Scripture is less about an assembly of letters, a personal label or title in a certain language, and how you sound that out. And it's more about the character of that being, the reputation of that being, the sum total of that being's attributes. So, we're going to look at how God's name can be called upon and worshipped. We're going to look at how God's name carries weight, reputation, renown, glory. How God's name can be honored as sacred, or God's name can be taken in vain like we see in the Ten Commandments. We're going to see how God's name is actually about His character, again, His attributes. How God's name can actually be placed on people. God's name can actually be falsely attached to things. God's name can inhabit spaces. God's name can fill geographical locations and mark those places and locations. God's name can be personally known as if to have a friendship with the name of God. God's name offers life, salvation, forgiveness. You can trust and hope in his name. You can do things in God's name. And what you're going to see at the end of this is that Jesus actually embodies the name of God. He is, if you want to say it, in a very succinct way, you could appropriately say, according to scripture, that Jesus is the embodiment of God's name. The, the name in scripture, in the Old Testament in particular, the name, that idea, that category, serves as a placeholder for Jesus to fit in oh so neatly when we get to the New Testament. So then when he says, pray in my name, all of this, all of this will make sense. Okay, all of this will make sense. So let's break this down. Let's go back. God's name can be called upon. Here are some scriptures that reinforce that. Zechariah 13, 9. He says, They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. So before we can understand the name as a proper theological idea and what that means, let's break this down. You can call upon his name. Well, what does that mean? This relates to God, the people of God specifically. Apparently, you have to be the people of God to appropriately call upon his name. Um, and this is where some people might differ. When we get to Romans 10, well, how do you call upon his name if, if, as an unbeliever? Well, I think this is the idea, is that you calling upon the name is already evidence of faith. 
inward rea- the inward reality that you've been born again and trusted in the gospel. But nonetheless, calling upon the name of God is to pray, to worship, to praise, um, to seek for, to, to pursue, to search out. It's simply to um, show honor and, and, and reverence and respect towards God in prayer and worship. So Genesis 4.26 we see that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, 8, um, this is where uh, Abraham builds an altar to God and calls on his name. And so there's sacrifice involved, there's worship, there's dedication, there's honoring and reverencing and hallowing the name of God as sacred. And so if, if this is an idea to call upon the name, we're going to slowly break down our cultural misunderstandings along the way. But if you call upon and worship the name of God, um, it seems to be that it makes less sense that you would worship a personal label, um, a title, or some kind of assembling of letters in a specific language referring to God. That, that seems to be to make the least sense. Because to worship, um, let's say you a, a, a king walks into the room. I didn't think about this, so hopefully this analogy actually works. A king walks in and his people bow down. Okay, that, that king has a specific name. Let's say his name is King Charles. And they're bowing down, not not to the his personal name, that being, oh, the Charles. They're bowing down to the person and the 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 the, the weight and the reputation of that person's presence. They're they're honoring and hallowing that person's uh you know presence and reputation and character. And this will become clearer along the way, I promise. Um, Abraham here plants a tamarisk tree in Genesis 21, and he calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That's interesting. Is God's name the everlasting God? Is it the Lord? Is it Adonai? The name of the Lord here is something that Abraham is able to call upon confidently with worship and reverence. Or in Genesis 26, we see um, Isaac here builds an altar to God. And what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. So the name of God can be called upon. What about Psalm 148? And this continues down to Jacob, down to you know the rest of um, their descendants. Psalm 148 verse 13. It says, let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Now, this is what's interesting is the majesty is at least connected to, if not at also, synonymous with the name of God. So let me show you. The name of God here is is praised. I'm still learning how to use this software. <laughs> the name of God is praised. The name of God is exalted. But then the psalmist switches and he almost seemingly, talking about the same idea, says his majesty is above earth and heaven. Could the psalmist also say his name is above earth and heaven? Yeah, you'll see statements like that all throughout scripture. The name of God is above all, right? That's why Jesus will be given the name that is above all names. That's not a new concept. So God's majesty here seems to be related to, connected to the name of God, if not synonymous with the name of God. Acts 22.16 is another idea where um, I believe it's Paul talking. 
one Ananias, a devout man. Uh, This is Paul recalling what happened on the road to Damascus when the Lord encountered him. Boom. He says, when I, um, Ananias came and he goes, Paul, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. So there are so many ways to make sense of this idea, to call on the name of God. But as we make sense of that and understand the different variants within that, the the variety of ideas within this idea of calling on his name, it'll make more sense about what his name really is. So the name of God can be called on. The name of God can be worshipped. The name of God can be um, prayed to and adored and reverenced. Uh, The name of God can be called on in terms of salvation. And the name of God seems to be related to, if not synonymous with, his majesty, which leads perfectly into the next idea, that God's name carries weight. God's name carries reputation. God's name uh, carries, in fact, the actual Hebrew word for name. Let me break this down for you. The Hebrew word Shem, uh, translated name in English, can, re- can mean standing, reputation, fame, renowned, um, and even at times has attached to it a, a degree of glory. Okay? So, the idea of calling on God's name. How did they call upon the name of the Lord? If you look at Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, even the people in Adam's generations. God says to Moses, I didn't reveal my name, the Lord, right? Until now to you, Moses. That means everyone before Moses didn't know that specific revelation of God. That being his name is the Lord. So how could they call upon the name of the Lord, in prince, in quotations, when God had not yet revealed his name as the Lord until Moses at Exodus 6. This means they couldn't have been invoking the name or personal title, the Lord, right? But they were still calling upon his name without that knowledge. Which means it wasn't about a specific title or personal name or an assembly of letters in any language. It was more about the weight, character, and reputation of that being they were worshiping. This is why I bring you to this idea. Exodus chapter 9. This is going to make so much sense when you get to the commandment that says, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Because everyone wants to focus on the speech aspect and how you say that name and how you might dishonor and demean that name with your words and, and curse, use God's name as a curse word. That's typically how it's understood is don't use God's name as a curse word. Is that really what it means, though? Exodus 9.16, it says, For this purpose I've raised you up, the Lord is talking to Pharaoh, to show you my power. Okay, hang on to that. Showing God's power here. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God wants his name to be proclaimed in all the earth like... There's a giant megaphone going throughout the earth that says, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Adonai. Is that what God wants? Or is this about His fame, His reputation, His glory, His the weightiness of His name being known throughout the nations? Because it's attached to God's power being shown. So in other words, when you go, what does it mean for God to proclaim His name? It's not just about a verbal decree. It's not just about an audio message that people hear and go, oh, the Lord. It's about his power being displayed so that his name is known. Exodus 20, verse 9. He says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them 
in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So when God brought Israel out of Egypt, what was he doing? He was acting for the sake of his name so that the nations around would know as God makes his name known, whoa, that is the God of Israel. We know him by his power, his majesty, his reputation precedes him. Go down to verse 14, but I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the nations again in whose sight I brought them out. There's the idea is that God is concerned with his name. God is actually rightfully concerned in a holy, not insecure way, but in a holy way. He's concerned with his reputation in the earth that people would know him properly and have a proper understanding and view of him. He says, but I withhold, held my hand in Exodus 20 and I acted for the sake of my name. And he, just in this chapter alone, three times, the Lord says, I acted for the sake of my name. Why? That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. Which means what? For God's name to be known and hallowed is the opposite of, for his, uh, of the idea of his name being profaned. So there are two ways to treat God's name. His name can be profaned or his name can be uh, upheld and honored and exalted. And he's going, I don't want the nations to profane my name. In fact, I don't want my name to be profaned in the sight of the nations. So this is not the nations speaking ill of God, but for God's name to be profaned in the nations means they are seeing if God did not rescue Israel or if God just you know, left Israel in slavery, or even if God destroyed Israel right there in the wilderness, if he did that, and this is Ezekiel chapter 20, sorry, I said Exodus, this is all Ezekiel chapter 20, recounting the Exodus narrative, so, my fault, and here in Ezekiel 20, three times, the Lord says, I acted for the sake of my name, why? So that wouldn't, it wouldn't be profaned in the sight of the nations, because if they saw God destroy Israel with their eyes, if they saw God leave Israel in Egypt in slavery, then his name would be belittled, minimized, or profaned in their sight. Meaning they would be evaluating God improperly. They would have a wrong understanding and a wrong view of God. So, so to profane the name of God, and this is going to make so much more sense, I promise. To profane the name of God is about how you um, treat, view consider and whether or not you respect his name. Malachi 1.11. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this this morning. Hopefully God will pick up the broken pieces. Malachi 1.11 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Is this about God, is this about people in the nations having, like, addressing God by the right personal title? Or is this about people in the nations having a right view and understanding of who the God of Israel really is? Because if they're offering incense to his name, if they're pouring out an offering to his name, if they're worshiping his name, that means they have a proper reverence for his name. For them to not do that would be to profane his name, which is to treat it as common. Malachi 1.14, it says, Cursed be the cheat. Now watch, this, this, this becomes almost commentary on the commandment to not take the name of the Lord in vain. 
That as much as you guys and I were raised to think that taking God's name in vain means using his name as a curse word or, um, you know, saying something inappropriate attached to his name or, or having his name be behind a bunch of curse words. As much as we were taught that, and as much as I don't recommend doing that, is that what the scripture is actually teaching when it tells us to not take the name of God in vain? Malachi 1.14, it says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In other words, he lies um, and he gives God something that God is, has not asked for. God says, I want unblemished sacrifice and you gave me a, a blemished sacrifice. Something that has an error. <laughs> something that has an uh, infirmity. Some kind of issue with it. You're, you're treating God as, well, God's not worthy of my best, so I'm going to give him just a blemish sheep. He goes, I'm a great king, says the Lord, and my name will be feared among the nations. Which sounds like, hey, people who are cheating me out of what I'm worthy of, and you're not bringing me a sacrifice that I'm worthy of, you're not treating my name as holy. And then when the nations look on at the way you treat my name through your sacrifices, they're not going to fear my name. I want my name to be feared among the nations. And if you continue cheating me of what I'm worthy of and not bringing me a sacrifice of what I'm worthy of, the nations will have an idea and a view of God that is wrong. And in that sense, they won't fear his name. Joshua 9.9, all these scriptures talk about how God's name carries weight. God's name is about his reputation, his fame, his renown. Uh, Joshua 9.9 says, They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have, have come uh, because of the name of the Lord. We've heard a report of him. We've heard of all he did in Egypt. Oh, we heard of everything he did to the two kings of the Amorites. We heard everything about what your God has done. Which is another way of saying what? We've heard of the name of your God. Oh, so is this about a specific way to refer to God and address him according to a personal label or title and using the right name? Or is this more about, not to say that doesn't matter, I can just call God Carl. <laughs> Someone said that in the comments. But what I will say is this seems to be more about the reputation of God in your mind, the way you see him, understand him, relate to him, whether or not you honor him or not. Acts 9.15, the Lord said to him, speaking to Saul, or speaking to Ananias about Saul, who's going to become an apostle. He says, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles. He's going to suffer a lot for my name. What does Paul end up doing? He brings the gospel. He brings the kingdom. He does what? He carries the name of of God to the nations. Something I'm just now considering. All the scriptures I chose accidentally are all about the nations seeing the name of God embodied and displayed through people that carry that name well. Which means what? God's name can be carried. And Paul is going to carry that reputation in the gospel, that kingdom, the spirit of God. He's carrying the message of this king to the nations so that the nations would fear and love and revere God's name, which is what? His reputation, his character, 
how they see him, how they treat him. Isaiah 12, 4 says, You will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. So when we talk about the name of God, in almost all these passages, it's about what he's done, which reveals who he is. It's more about the heart of God, the character of God, the, what he does for his people, his history, what he's capable of. Psalm 96, eight: Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship him properly. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So God's name is worth and deserving of a degree of glory which seems to be an infinite amount of glory. And if his name is due and worthy of glory, you bring that to him. How? By worshiping, which is another way of saying, call upon his name. First Samuel 17, 45. David approaches Goliath, and what does David say? You've come to me with a sword. You've come to me with a spear and a javelin. You seem pretty equipped, Goliath. <laughs> you got a whole armory. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is what the people of Israel will declare about Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a reference to this idea in Goliath's, David and Goliath's story. David approaches Goliath not trusting in his weapons, not on the basis of how strong his weapons are, but he's approaching Goliath with a trust in God's sacred name, which is what? God's ability, God's strength, God's character, God's history, God's reputation, and he's trusted in that. And now he's leaned the weight of the battle on that name that he trusts in, the name of the God of armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Okay, so we we probably know this by now, but God's name can be honored as sacred. Isaiah 29, 23, they will sanctify my name. When, 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 for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. What does it mean to sanctify God's name? To stand in awe of him. To sanctify is to treat as sacred, to hallow. To, to treat as set apart and distinct from all the rest. Do you treat God's name that way? I don't care if you got the personal title right now. I call him the Lord. I call him Yahweh. I call him Jehovah. You don't freaking care. Do you treat him properly? Do you revere him appropriately? Do you live according to who he really is? This becomes the real issue of taking God's name in vain. Malachi 2.2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, I'll send the curse upon you, which means you and I have the choice, just like the people of Israel, to either give honor to God's name or not. He says, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. He stood in awe of my name, which is another way of saying what? He honored, he revered my name. He hallowed my name. What is Matthew chapter 6, the prayer in that section of scripture open with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, sacred, holy be your name. Which is not just a recognition of God's holiness, but, a, but almost an admission that I 
am going, or, or even a cry for help. Help me to treat your name as holy, your character, your reputation, your weight, your personhood. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And that's a good thing, to fear the name of God, to honor his name appropriately. How about Exodus 20.24, 20, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on, on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So that's interesting. In order to hallow God's name, to say, you know, treat his name as sacred, the, the assumption is that you're remembering his name properly. Your scripture is informing your thoughts about his name and his character. God's name can also be taken in vain, treated as common. Another way of saying taking God's name in vain is you disrespect his name, you disregard his name, you belittle his name, you treat his name as common. Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Isn't that interesting? That's one of the Ten Commandments that often gets overlooked. But let's explore this a little more. What does it mean to take God's name in vain? Well, Isaiah 48, 11, he says, For my own sake, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. There's something about when we attribute glory that is rightfully only God's. When we attribute worship, like worship and affection that is rightly due to God alone. When we give that to another false god, an idol, some other false deity, God's name is being profaned. Not just by you, but by people who look at you and think, oh, that's who God is. He's a God that shares worship and glory with false gods. Not only is your life minimizing the name of God, but through their evaluation of your life, they will now, in their minds, think improperly about God and take his name in vain. So there's weight to this. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and profane the name of your God. So how do you profane the name of God by attaching God's name to a lie and going, I will in the name of God and you have no intent, you're lying. That's dishonoring to God's name. You're actually attaching God's character and his being to deception as if he does that. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? The Lord says, if I'm a master, where's my fear? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table can be despised. In other words, they're treating the holy and the sacred things of God as common. And they're looking on the things of God which are holy and sacred and going, I mean, it's not that important. We can do whatever we want with the things of God. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? So in other words, they're bringing God less, not just less than what he deserves, but they're bringing God something that is dishonoring. Something that's dishonoring. Really, you're going to bring me that when I told you to bring blameless sacrifices and you're just giving me the leftovers? 
Isaiah 52 5 we're, we're making progress I promise this is this is the heavy work and we're gonna get this is gonna be rewarding at the end Isaiah 52 5 now therefore what have I here declares the Lord seeing that my people are taken away for nothing the rulers wail declares the Lord and continually all day my name is despised watch therefore my people shall know my name in that day they shall know it is I who speak here I am how beautiful. And then here we enter into the kingdom of God coming. Good news of salvation. Good news of rescue. Which they will hear one day. And it's attached to Jesus, the spiritual dimension of salvation, right? But here, what's interesting is the people of Israel being sent into exile. That is God's name being despised. It's not necessarily. I'm not going to make this not about their disobedience and say, it's not about their disobedience. No, God's name was despised and taken in vain through their disobedience and rebellion. Absolutely. But now what God is referring to in this passage is that his name is despised. How? By who? In the nations, by his people being taken away into exile. Because now the nations are going, I thought the God of Israel was strong. I thought he could protect his people. I thought he was going to... Sounds like Jesus on the cross. If God loves him, take him down. Take him down. Come on down if you're loved by God, buddy. Sounds like that. God's name is despised in what Israel's exile is causing other nations to think about God. See it? Jeremiah 23, 27. How long shall there be lies in these prophets? They're lying who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams. They tell, in other words, they're saying, let's go after Baal or Baal. Let's go after that Canaanite God. Forget the God of Israel. I had a dream. Baal wants us. Okay, so you're using your dreams and your status as prophet to lead people away from God to Baal. And in that sense, they're causing God's people to forget his name. How about Jeremiah 32, 34? They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. Which is another way of saying, what are they doing to God's name? Not just the house that is called by his name, but God's name. They're belittling. They're disrespecting. They're taking his name in vain by worshiping false gods in the place where God's name is to be treated holy. And not only that, it's not just about the space. It's the fact that they would worship anyone except the Lord God. And in that sense, they are taking his name in vain. Jeremiah 34, 16. This is interesting. You recently repented, talking to the people of Israel, I believe. And you did what was right in my eyes, or Jerusalem and Judah. By proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and you profaned my name. When each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you had set free. And you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. In what way are the Jews here profaning God's name? By taking slaves for themselves. And disrespecting the image of God in people. 
These are image bearers of God that have worth and dignity and are loved by God, and you're bringing them into subjection to be your slaves right after you said you wouldn't stop doing it. Not only are you lying, not only did you change your mind, not only did you anti-repent, but now you're treating people, image bearers of God, with a level of dishonoring and disrespect that it's profaning my name. So I wonder, is profaning God's name or taking his name in vain more about how we treat his name, what we do in his name? Uh, we'll get to this in a second. But God's name, oof, Revelation 2.13. These are people who did not deny Jesus. They hold fast to his name. Does that just mean even in the midst of persecution, they say Jesus or Jehovah or Yahweh? Are they just saying the right name? Anyone can say the right name under pressure or, or say a, a title of God under pressure. What, what's actually happening here? They're choosing not to do and give into the actual perversion and immorality and sin of what's around them, pressuring them to do that. Which also is, I'm not claiming allegiance to anyone else but the Lord God for sure, but it's a life. It's action. Revelation 3.8, I know your works. I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. How would you deny the name of God here, or Jesus speaking? Well, by not keeping his word. And what's his word? Well, mainly and primarily, it is the gospel. The message of salvation, the message of his kingship, the message of his kingdom, and the good news of that. And then everything else flows from that. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources. All of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry discussion groups, or arm discussion groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. God's name is about his character. I want you to see this. Genesis 16, 13. This is Hagar. She goes, mm. she just encountered God in a very real way. He noticed her. She's loved and cherished and noticed by the Lord. And she called the name of the Lord, which by the way, that name has not yet been revealed until Exodus 6, 3. So this is written in hindsight. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of sin. How dare you, Hag, an Egyptian slave, naming God as if you have that authority. Is that what she's doing? Is she deciding what God's personal name is? Or is she attributing right thinking, right theology, right character to the Lord God and saying, you are a God who sees. You look after me. I'd say this is incredibly, she's, what she just encountered was a God, who she just encountered was a God who loves, cherishes, notices, and looks after her. And now her response is to call 
his name. Not to change his name or decide, hey, this is how we refer to God now. But to say, you are a God of seeing, which is to say your character. I know your heart, not your name. Your name. Exodus thirty-three nineteen. This is interesting. Moses on the mount goes, please show me your glory. Which, if I remember correctly, is kavod. I'm learning Hebrew. See that, Marcus? And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And God doesn't say, and I'll proclaim to you all my glory. He says, I will proclaim before you my name. The Lord. And you go, see, it's about that name. That exclusive title and personal label we use to address God. Is it? Because look at what he does. The Lord passes before him, and here's what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, and you go, see? Well, if it was about the personal label and that assembling of letters, he would have stopped there. The Lord, the Lord, that's my name. Get over it, Moses. Let's move on. We got stuff to do. But no, what he does is he goes, the Lord, a God merciful. Hmm? How do I highlight without having to, like, drag my mouse? I'll figure it out. A God merciful, a God gracious, a God slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love, a God abounding in faithfulness. This doesn't sound like God is telling Moses what his exclusive personal personal name is in terms of, hey, it's Charles, it's Franklin. This is the character of God is what he's communicating. I am a God who is... Mer- Does God care more about... If we had to choose hypothetically, I'm not saying you have to. I am not saying you have to. But if hypothetically, you had to choose between having right thinking about God's character and his being and who he is versus knowing what to call him, the Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, Yahuwah. If, if, which one is more important? Knowing who God is in essence and nature and character or knowing what two words or what single word to use to refer to him. You are the Lord. You are Yahweh. You are Hoa. You are Jehovah. Hashem, the name. The majesty on high. I think God cares more about us if we had to ever choose, which we don't, thank God, if we ever had to. God cares more about you having right thinking about his character and substance and nature and heart in his ways. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. What matters more? This portion? That I would know what to call God throughout my life? Or that I would know who he is throughout my life? That he's merciful? Which one changes your life? Which one changes the way you interact with people? Which one changes the way you relate to God? And which one changes your the fundamental being? Knowing that he's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, and all these other things. The name of God is more about who he is, not what you're supposed to label him or address him as. What name doesn't seem to matter as much? Judges 13, God talks about to Manoah, uh, Samson's daddy. He goes, What's your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Or Genesis 32, when God's wrestling, or Jacob's wrestling a man, and then he looks back and goes, I've seen the face of God. 
Jacob asks him, please tell me your name. And the angel of the Lord here says, hmm, why is it that you asked my name? And then in Manoah's story, it seems as though there's a little phrase added at the end of that. Like verbatim, he says, why do you ask my name? And then he tells Manoah in Judges 13, seeing that it is wonderful. So it's almost like a reference and a callback to this. But the idea here is God will tell Moses he's going to place his name in the angel of God that he's sending before him. And I find that fascinating because Jesus will essentially say that he has the name of God in him, that he's one with him, that his name is his, that the Father's name is his own. Deuteronomy 32.3, I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. So is God great? Yeah. Is that part of God's name? Is that he's great? Absolutely. Well, what about this? Holy is God's name in Luke 149. This is Elizabeth, or Mary. Mary's magnifying God and going, ooh, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done this. Holy is his name. So if his name is holy, why do we call him God? Why do we call him the Lord? Why do we call him Adonai? Why do we call him all these different, if his name is holy? Because holy is a description of his character. Not a personal label or title we use. He is holy in that sense, but I don't go, holy. I'm just asking if you would, please, holy. It's weird. But we approach him as if he is, and knowing that he is, holy, set apart. Amos 4.13. I know this is a little tedious for some of you. But if you want scripture to back all this up, before we get to the the real bombs that I'm going to drop, I want to give you as much as I possibly can. Amos 4.13, Behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So my question is, even in the Hebrew grammatical syntax, my question is, the name of God, is that described by this portion of the verse or mainly this portion? Well, you, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. But what about everything he just said? Who else forms the mountains? Who else creates the wind? Who else declares to man what is his thoughts? Who else makes the morning darkness? Who else treads on the heights of the earth? The answer is no one. No one. But the only true and living God that we worship and hallow as sacred, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, However you refer to him, in whatever name and language you're working from, it's more about who he is and what he does exclusively. Exclusively. Isaiah 47.4. Read this. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's holy. He's Redeemer. He's also Lord of hosts, which means he's over the angelic armies, and he's over the hosts of heaven, in charge. These descriptions are exclusive to the one true and living God of creation. Jeremiah ten sixteen, Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he's the one who formed all things. Israel's the tribe of his inheritance, and the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, do these biblical writers have to continue reminding um, their their readers and the people, remember, God's name is the Lord. Is that really what they're doing? Because they forgot. Oh, that's right. I forgot his name's not Baal. 
forgot his name's not Ashtoreth. I forgot his name's not, you know, whatever Egyptian god you want to fill in the blank with. No, the, what's mainly in mind is he's reminding the people of Jerusalem and Judah who God is. The one who forms all things. The one who's taken Israel as his unique, special, and treasured inheritance. The one who is the portion of Jacob. The one who's over the angelic armies. All of that, all of that is his name. Psalm 111 verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So what's his name, guys? If we're going to take these statements literally as if God is telling us what we need to call him as a personal title, then start calling him holy and awesome and use that as a personal label. Go ahead. If you want to be literal with the text, the name of God all throughout the scriptures we're looking at, to not, this is not to say how you refer to God or how you address him does not matter. The idea is what matters most and more than the label that you use is who you think he is, how you think about him, how you treat him, what what thoughts come to mind when you hear the, the God of Israel or the God of creation or the Lord God of however you refer to him. Holy and awesome is his name. He sent redemption. He's commanded his covenant. That's what is most important. That's what is most important. Also, this is where it gets really, for people who are not used to this, this can be a little wonky donkey, to quote Peppa Pig. (laughs) Number 627, we're going to see that God's name can be placed on people. In other words, people, communities, nations can be identified and even defined by God's name. Does that mean we refer to them? If, if you go, well, God's name is Adonai. God's name is Yahweh. Does that mean we refer to the people that have his name? We, we call them Yahweh and Adonai? That gets a little weird, doesn't it? Number 627. It says, They shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, beyond context and getting to the idea is present. That the name of God is being put upon the people of Israel to bless them. The heck does that mean? Isaiah 65, 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who didn't seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. What does it mean to be called by God's name? What does it mean to have his name on you? Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, hold on. Doesn't every human being in existence exist for God's glory technically? Isn't there a main reason for existence to be formed and fashioned for the glory of God? Yes, but not everyone will live like that. Those who are called by God's name will live like their reason for existing is his glory. And they were formed and made by him. Acts fifteen seventeen. <clears throat> we have the prophets being quoted. 
Uh, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So now we have a, a, an inverted statement about, you know, uh, that we saw in Isaiah 43, 7. The Gentiles who are not called by my name. But here we have Gentiles who are called by God's name. And what does that mean? Revelation 14, 1 might be helpful in understanding this. And as we navigate this even more. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name whoa, and his father's name. Not, not, to, to, not to separate the two as if they're two distinct ideas, but to combine them. The father's name is the son's name and vice versa. They share the same name. They're united in the same name in essence and nature and being. Okay? So we're looking at 144,000 who had the name, his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. Is this a literal tattoo they're getting? Is this actually them? God is going, I need 144,000 people to tattoo their foreheads. And then on their action, or is this symbolic of what the Torah talks about? Being right your law on my right hand. Write your law on my forehead. Write your law all over me on your doorposts. What's the idea? Is it a tattoo or is it a metaphorical, poetic way of talking about God's ways marked their life? They were identified with the character and the ways of God. I would say it's that one. Revelation 22.4 says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Again, is this a literal few letters in a certain language that you sound out a certain way? Or is this, hey, their lives were marked by the ways of God. Their lives were identified with the character, the word, and the ways, and the heart of God. Who can You can have a tattoo on your head that has the actual exclusive name of the only true and living God, and then you go out and live like hell. What matters more? That you claim his name and you have it written literally on your forehead? Or that your life, your thinking, your doing is marked by his ways? What does God care more about? You tell me. God's name can be placed on people. Isn't that fascinating? God's name can also be falsely attached to things. I reference you to Jeremiah 14 in Jeremiah 23. Go read that. God's name can be falsely claimed. Where someone goes, in the name of God, I, I make an oath. Or in the name of God, I make a prophecy. Or in the name of God, I had a dream. Or in the name of God, I'll tell you something, bro. You can falsely attach the character, weight, reputation of the God of Israel to a set of ideas. God's name actually inhabits spaces. Does that mean God takes floating letters in Hebrew? yod heh vav And he... They're just floating in the temple when God fills the temple with his name. 2 Samuel 7.13. This is um, talking about what Samuel, Samuel, Solomon will do. He shall build a house for my name. Now, when you build a house for a name, when God tells David, I'm going to build a house for name, your name, what he means is a lineage, a reputation, um, descendants, uh, a, a glory that will continue. So a household name, you might say. 
I'm going to build a house for your name. That's the symbolic way. And you might even say the, I don't want to get that far. But God tells this to David. I'm going to build a, build a house for your name. I know you want to build a house for my name. I'm going to build a house for your name. But the two ideas are different. Meaning, David, God doesn't build David a literal building. Where it's like, this is David's. This is his name dwells here. That's different. God is actually going to give David uh, a heritage, descendants, lineage, uh, reputation, glory, you know, all that stuff through Jesus, the ultimate descendant of David. But when God says, I'm going to have Solomon build me a house, that's a literal house, and it also symbolically represents God's weight, his glory, his reputation in the earth. It's like this is the throne of God. This is where if you want to encounter and meet with him and see his glorious radiance, this, this is where you come. 2 Samuel 7.13, he says the house is for his name. And you go, well, that doesn't mean his name is dwelling there, you weirdo. Don't get too literal with the idea. Jeremiah 7. He talks about how this house is called by God's name. 1 Kings 8.16, since the day I brought my people out of Israel or out of Egypt, I chose no city uh, to build a house that my name might be there. I didn't choose that. Well, what do you mean, God? What do you mean build a house that your name would be there? Are you telling me your name has action to it? Your name can do stuff? Your name can dwell and inhabit spaces? 1 Kings 9.3, the Lord said, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built. Watch what he does. It's not just like, this house is in dedication, like it's a memorial. We think of memorials, like we think of the temple at times like it's a memorial. And though there is a memorial dimension to it, we are saying this is in honor to, in reverence to, and in respect of God. That's not all it is. It's not just, we're just remembering his name. He's not really here. It's just more like a, a reminder. It's beyond that. Putting God's name in this place is really odd language to you and me. Isn't that weird? I'm going to put my name there forever. Where? In the house you're going to build? But that house got destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, and then eventually the other one that gets built gets destroyed by Rome. So what do you mean? Well, 2 Kings 11.36, and I don't necessarily have an answer to that. I just thought I'd pose the question. He says, Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. Look at how God describes Jerusalem. The city where I have chosen to put my name. Now again, is this God literally taking floating letters? Yahweh. Or Adonai. And then he has Solomon build a house and he's like, cool. Then he pulls the roof off and he drops the alphabet in there. He goes, my name's there now. What does it mean for God's name to be placed in a location? What does that even mean? I would say this. It's that a space, a location, a geographical place is marked by and defined as sacred because it's marked by God's very name and reputation and weight and glory and fame and character. It's where a place in time 
is identified with the reputation and character and presence of the God of creation. So it's marked as sacred. It's declared holy. It's actually inhabited by his name. 2 Kings 21.4 says, He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. So there's a lot of passages that talk about God placing, as if it is an object to place in a location. He is placing his name in the temple. Isn't that weird? Well, what did God say about his people? I'm going to place my name on you. So we see that God's name can be placed on people. We see that God's name can be placed in spaces and locations. Jeremiah 25, 29 says, Behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And I think to say something is called by God's name or marked by God's name or identified with God's name is another way of saying his name dwells there. It's identification. Okay? It's how something is marked, what it's identified by. And the temple, what goes on in the temple, is not just marked by the presence of God being there in space and in time, but it's marked by and it's treated as sacred based on what people do in that space. And then concentrically throughout Jerusalem and throughout Israel and throughout the northern and southern kingdoms, what are people doing to either treat God's name as sacred and hallow his name, or what are they doing to disrespect and minimize his name? God's name can actually be known personally, meaning someone's being and life can be so linked up with the character and the ways of God that it's as if they're united with the heart and ways of God. That's the best way I can think of it. Watch, let me show you. Psalm 90, this is why people are like, His name is Jehovah, His name is Yahweh. That's not the conversation. The conversation is, what do you think about this God? Who do you know Him to be? What do you live like He is like? How does your, what message does your life communicate about the God you're so busy fighting about His name? What does your life actually say about Him? Psalm 91.14, it says, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. Notice this idea of holding fast to God. Same idea in Revelation. They hold fast to my name. They have not denied my name. And God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him. Why? Because he knows my name. Is this just like, I'm a random pagan, and I'm like, I know the God of Israel's name. Adonai, Yahweh, whatever you want. That's his name. And God's like, well, I'll protect him because he knows my name. Or is this more personal? Is this more relational? Is this more friendship and familiarity that has been bred over time through investing into relationship and searching the scriptures and, and knowing the character of God? And I would say that's what it is. You can know the name of God. And this is not to talk about intellectual stimulation. The information and the data. I know his name. Do you personally? On a friendship level, know his name. Isaiah 52, 6, he says, Therefore my people shall know my name. In that day they'll know it is I who speak. It's just, this is John 10, 
just all over this. John chapter 10. You know the voice of the shepherd. You don't just know him and his voice, but you also know his character and his ways and his tendencies. You know what he's against. You know what he's for. And then in that way, you know his name. So that when he speaks, you go, ah, that's my father. And when someone else speaks and goes, I'm God, you go, no. That's the voice of a stranger. Get out of here, Chuck. Jeremiah 16, 21. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might. And they shall know my name is the Lord. So the Lord once again identifying with this revelation he's given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am, the self-existent, self-sufficient one. The Lord, Adonai, they shall know that my name... Part of that is knowing his power and his might. And this is not like at a distance, like, whoa, see that explosion? That was my God. It's in your life. You've personally experienced his power and might. You've not just seen it. You've not just heard of it. You've actually experienced it. Psalm 89, 24 says, My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. In my name, his horn will be exalted. There's something about the name of God can be placed on people. The name of God can fill spaces. The name of God can mark your life. And you can be identified with his name. But also, things can be done in his name. Whether that be accurate to who he is or not. Let me show you. God actually offers life and salvation and forgiveness in his name. His name becomes the packaging for salvation, forgiveness in life. So it's if he's, and this is why I say Jesus is the embodiment of God's name. I think it's appropriate to even say Jesus is, in fact, the name of God. That category, that placeholder that's created in the Old Testament by the name Hashem, it's absolutely, when you get to the New Testament, And you see Jesus do what he does and the way he's talking about himself and his ministry and how the disciples talk about him. You go, that sounds familiar. That's like everything I read about the name of God in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.12. It says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So is this people like, like we're magicians or witches and we're just like, saying his name like we're casting a spell. Like, oh, I'm scared. Ah, danger's all around me. I must use his name as an incantation. Yahweh, Adonai. Okay, got my supernatural shield around me. Now I'm good. Is that what he means? Because some people treat God's name like that. Like it's an incantation. Like if I just say the right word, if I just say it the right way with the right inflection, if I just pronounce it correctly and get the right assembling of the letters in the Hebrew and I say yod heh vav or Yahweh and I'm breathing in and breathing out, if I just say his name, then all this stuff comes attached. Is that what it's about? Just saying a set of words and sounding out appropriately the, the personal name of God? Is that what it means to take refuge in his name? I don't think so. I don't think God wants us to treat his name like it's a magic spell or an incantation to use when we're afraid or anxious. Not to knock on people who like, you hear something in the in the basement, you go, in Jesus' name, leave. Mm-mm. 
I'm not knocking on that. But I also want you to be thoughtful about what you even mean. Come out in Jesus' name. What do you mean? Be healed in Jesus' name. What do you mean? What does it mean to take refuge in the name of God? If we're to be consistent with what we've seen all throughout Scripture, the name of God refers to His character and His ways. To take refuge in the name of God is to trust in who He is, what you know about Him, what He's done for you, who He's promised Himself to be, what He's going to do, and then you live like that. You don't just philosophically take refuge in the information and go, the data, yes, that's my trust. Information is my shield from danger. You actually, that data should prompt you to live according to that truth. Right? Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of our God. So you seek refuge in it. Just think about this. You can seek refuge in the name of God, which isn't just to say his name out loud and go, Whew, I'm good. Who cares what you're saying in that moment if your life is um, contradicting his word? Like, who cares? Because some people do this like, just give me the right words to say. Give me the right words to say so I can live however I want and have the protection, have the provision, have the care. I want all this. I want all this and I need just... Just give me the set of words, the magic spell, the incantation, whatever it is, whatever name I got to call him, just tell me what to say so I can go and live my life. It's like, bro, you don't understand. To seek refuge in his name, to trust in his name, is to understand who he is and to let that inform how you live, and now you live out the ways of God. His character, the fruits of his spirit, the word of God is coming out of your life. Isaiah 50.10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servants. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. What does it mean to trust in God? Walk in his light. What does it mean to trust in his name? Rely on him. John 1.12. This is what I mean by God's name offers salvation, forgiveness, life. Hmm. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to believe? You've, you've probably read this verse a million times. You've probably read this verse a million times. And you might not have had the background understanding of God's name to really know what's happening here. If you receive Jesus, that's not just some, uh, you're not just signing a document and, and, and you know, signing your name on the dotted line going, I agree to the facts, the terms and conditions, I checked the box, now give me salvation. If agreeing with the facts is all that faith is, then the demons should be saved, but they're not. If acknowledging the information as true and factual is all it takes to be saved, then the demons are fine too, right? James chapter 2, even the demons believe. But receiving Jesus, receiving the right to become children of God through faith, is to believe in his name, to trust in his name, to rely on his name, to look to his name. And to say that right there, that God, his character, his ways, his history, his story, is what provides me salvation and new life. John 2.23 says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, So there's something about 
the, the, the character of Jesus on display through his miracles and signs, whatever is going on, when they see the signs, they're going, oh, that tells us something about the person. Let me tell you, when you, how you live reveals who you are. There's no way to disconnect your identity and your life. It's not that my life determines my identity, it's that my identity determines my life. So who I really am is how I'm going to live. And how I live reveals who I really am. So if that's the case, then every time God does something in scripture, in history, in my life, he's revealing an aspect of who he is. So to believe in his name is to believe in who he is. John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God wants you to have life in his name, to believe in his name, to trust in his name. So all I got to do is have the right name of God written down on paper, and then I stare at that and go, I believe, and I'm set. Well, the gospel of salvation, the message of Jesus, reveals the character and the heart of God. To save, that he makes things good, that he's a gracious, merciful, forgiving, and just God. And all that informs me and how I am standing with him. Will I believe that, take him at his word, trust in that, or will I not? Will I not? But God offers life in his name. Acts 10.43 To him all the prophets bear witness. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So is this just like the name Yeshua, or the name Yehoshua, however it originally was in the Hebrew? Does that mean, or even Aramaic, does that mean that that name is all? I just need to hear that and go, ah, that name. And all of a sudden I have life. In, or is it about who he is and what he's done? Which is symbolically represented by the name. I think it's the name represents the summation of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then when you trust in who he is and what he's done, forgiveness, life, salvation, that comes through his name. Matthew 12, 21 says, In his name the Gentiles will hope. And I think some people take this so plastically rigid and literal that they go, if you don't have the right personal label and title for God, you're screwed. And it's like, well, what do you mean? What, what, is, his, what is his right name then? Well, it's, it's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. Adonai. It's actually, uh, I've heard some weird stuff, man. And I'm like, where does, where, where does this come from? Who, who is teaching you this in their basement right after your karate classes? <laughs> I don't, what, what is happening? Where are you getting this ridiculous information? Everyone seems to have the secret knowledge of, I have God's name. The name of God is about who he is and what he's done. Everyone has access to that. Luke 24, 47. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Be baptized in his name. What does that mean? In honor of, in dedication to, and, and here's what I want to get to as we close. Because this is going to enter into prayer. Enter into praying in his name. We can do things in God's name. 2 Samuel 6.18 uh, there, David blesses the people in God's name. Zechariah 10.12 uh, They walk in his name. How do you walk in his name? Do you like take chalk? And write his name out in the cement and go, 
How long do we do this? Like walls of Jericho? Seven days? Micah 4.5, you can walk in the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 18.7, you can minister in the name of the Lord. Colossians 3.17, which I want to bring you to. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here's, this is where it becomes the real question. Hold on, it seems like we're at odds with the Old Testament. I'm supposed to do things in God's name, and yet it says do things in Jesus' name. So is it Yahweh? Is it Yeshua? Is it which name is driving my decisions in this situation? How do I, how do I attach a name to what I, you know Jesus' character, which is completely consistent with the Father's character. His heart, his ways, that's his name. Now live according to that. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have, um, you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So you do things in his name. So we have established that God's name can be praised. God's name can be called upon. God's name is worship. God's name carries weight, reputation, fame, renown, glory. God's name can be honored as sacred or treated as common and taken in vain. God's name is about his character, not one singular personal label or title. God's name can be placed on people. God's name can fill spaces and mark places. God's name can be known. God's name offers life, salvation, forgiveness. We're to trust and hope in his name, in who he is and what he's done, and who he's revealed himself to be. We can do things in God's name. And then I want to show you this. That it seems as though Jesus is more appropriately, you could say, God's name is in him, okay? But I think it's also safe to say that Jesus is in himself, in his nature. He is the embodiment of God's name. He is the name of God. Exodus 23, 21 says, pay careful attention to him. This is the angel of the Lord right here. I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. This sounds like what God told Moses about the prophet that would come who would be like Moses. Pay careful attention to him, obey his voice. This sounds like what the father says on the Mount of Transfiguration about his son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him, obey his voice. I love him. He's mine. Respect him. Do not rebel against him. He will not pardon your transgression. And this is key. My name is in him. Now, of all the scriptures I scoured, I did not find anywhere where God's name was in a person. His name was on people. People carried his name. People bore his name like they they would bear his name as if to be something that was on their shoulders that they were carrying through the wilderness. But I could not come across anything that talked about God's name being in a person except the sacred space, that being the temple. And I think we're to see that God's name being in Jesus, which I believe the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord being referred to here, I, this has, I'm telling you, this has pre-incarnate Jesus, the word emanating from the Father in some human form somehow here, pre-incarnate, that this has to be him. I've done a study on it. Go watch it. But I'm convinced that for the name of God to be in Jesus is different than for God's name to be on his people in the Old Testament. 
See, I don't think we, as New Covenant believers, have God's name on us like the Israelites. Here's what I mean. Old Testament Israel, as a nation, communally, nationally, they carried God's name. That's why God said, don't take my name in vain. I've placed my name on you. My reputation essentially rests in your national hands as a community. So how you live is a reflection of me. I've placed my name on you nationally as my treasured inheritance, right? But as New Covenant born-again believers filled with the Spirit, I'm convinced that because we are in Jesus that God has actually not placed his name on us, that we would bear his name. And if we fail, then we lose it. But rather, he's actually filled us as his people with, in his spirit, with his very name. And that might be quite the statement. But the reason I say that is because the only other place God's name is in something is in the temple. In the temple. And what does the New Testament say about the people of God as his church? We are collectively the temple. One one stone built on another, all on the cornerstone of Jesus. And if we're filled with the Spirit, who is the embodiment of God's presence, his name, his personhood, his character, perfectly in us, then it's safe to say that Jesus, having the name of God in him, has extended to us that same beautiful honor and privilege that we would not just bear God's name in the earth, but we would be filled with his name so that we can actually bear his name properly. Um, So Exodus 23, 21, my name is in him. Psalm 118, 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then Matthew 21, we'll quote this passage. The crowds seeing Jesus entering Jerusalem are going, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus coming is to, there's so much around that idea, (laughs) but very simply, he is uh, representing, and even whether they're aware of it or not, Jesus is embodying the very character and person of the Father. John 5, 42, um, or 43 says, I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another one comes in his name, you receive him. And Jesus is essentially saying, you guys have no idea (laughs) who is right in front of you. John has statements like that all throughout his gospel that should shock you. But because you can come in Jesus' name and and we can do things in God's name, uh, let me give you a few passages as we end about what we can do in Jesus' name besides praying. Um, Which again, it's not about the name, Yeshua, Yehoshua, is it technically Joshua? Is it Jesus? Is that a, a pagan transliteration that was actually aimed at Zeus? And that's ridiculous. You're out of your mind if you think that. But it's more about this. Matthew 18.5 says we can, we can receive people in Jesus' name. We can feed people. We can clothe people. We can give drinks to people and, and care for people and visit people in his name. Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13 says we can call upon his name for salvation. Acts 8.16 says we can be baptized in his name. Acts 9.28 says we can preach in his name. Acts 19.13 and Mark 16.17 says we can cast out demons in his name. Acts 21.13, you can die in his name. 1 Corinthians 5.4 and Matthew 18.20, you can assemble in his name. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you are justified and sanctified in his name. 
Mark 9, 39, you can do many mighty works in his name. In Matthew 24, 5, people can come in his name under false pretense. So what does it mean that we pray in Jesus' name? And next week, we're going to dive into this even more and actually get to the heart of praying in Jesus' name. This is all background information so that you understand when I pray in Jesus' name, I now understand what it means when I look at the name of God. I know it's about his character, his personhood, who he is, what he's done, his renown, his reputation, and how I treat him. That's what it means to either bear his name well or to dishonor his name and take his name in vain. So we can pray in Jesus' name. John 14, and we'll get to this more in depth next week. Um, I don't want to spend too much time here. But whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, this I will do. So the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I find it interesting that Jesus intentionally chooses to say that whatever you ask in my name, that aspect of praying in his name is connected to the Father being glorified in the Son. This is why Jesus will say, the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. And you go, what in the world? What is happening here? Um, which, maybe he doesn't say, I'm in the Father. Maybe I misquoted that. I am in the Father and the Father is in... Yeah, he does say that in John 14, 11. Believe me, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Um, but, uh, John fourteen twenty six, the helper who... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So he's going to send the Spirit in his name. John 15, 16 um, talks about how uh, we are to ask the Father for things in Jesus' name. Uh, again, the scriptures could say in his name, and Jesus could say in the Father's name, for the Father's name. The idea here being that we are to ask for things in Jesus' name, which isn't to say not the Father's name, but He's essentially saying, eh, what you see about the Father and His name in the Old Testament, eh. We're supposed to see these two ideas as one and the same. Jesus' name is the Father's name in that character, essence, being kind of way. Uh, John 16, 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He'll give it to you. John 15, 21, all these things will happen on account of me, um, on account of my name, he's talking about persecution and suffering. And that's at least the last scripture I have for prayer. I want you to be thinking about this, okay? This might be a, just a lot for you guys to take on today. Um, like a lot of these ideas, it might be too many new ideas. You might need to rewatch this. I encourage you to do that. Um, but to recap, we pray in Jesus' name, which is to approach the Father according to who he is, um, approach God according to who his son has revealed him to be, who the scriptures reveal him to be. Uh, again, the word of God informs how we approach God, how we live for God, how we bear and carry his name, um, what we pray, how we pray, with the heart we're supposed to pray. The word of God informs all these things. So in other words, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's the reputation, the renown, the character, the heart, and the ways of God. The name of God, which sums up all of that, is what is informing our prayers. 
how we pray, what we pray, why we pray, the direction we're praying, all those things are framed up by who is my father and um, what has he done. And then Jesus, we don't need to go and Jesus because Jesus is the perfect representation and example and embodiment of the ways and character of God. So when we get to prayer next week, and we talk about praying in Jesus' name and, and all that that involves, like on a more practical level, where it's like humility and confidence and, and claiming the promises of God. When we get to that, you'll have all this understanding of praying in his name that will really, I think this might change some of y'all's prayer life. This might change how, change how you even pray what you pray and what you pray and um you might just see you might just see a difference in your in your way of thinking when you pray now, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It might be initially like kind of frustrating and confusing. What does it mean to pray in His name? All these ideas should inform that I'm coming in His name. I'm approaching in, in His name. I'm I'm you know praying and saying things in His name. It's all about the name, the sum total character, and being of God more than it is. So in closing question becomes so uh, does it matter how we address God in prayer do we pray to him as Lord as God as Yahweh as Jehovah as Adonai Hashem pray to him as all those (laughs) but make sure to prioritize what Jesus and his father have done for us and who God is Um, and I think when you understand that Jesus referred to God as Father most of the time, that will help with maybe the, the overthinking. You might overthink this, and this might confuse you. Just pray to God as Father, but it's to pray in the name of Him, who He is and what He's done. Approach Him as Father. Pray to Him as Father. Talk to Him as Father. And um, we'll talk more about that next week. This is just, as much as I wanted it to be about prayer, running out of time. And so I want you guys to just know the name of God is more than probably what you've been taught most of your life. It, it's, it's far more um, and far deeper and far um, weightier and far more packed than what we've been taught about praying in the name of God. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit abovereproachministry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the new believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys and as always, keep moving towards Jesus.